Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Andy Fell, welcome to the podcast. It's nice my to see you. Absolute pleasure. Delighted to be here. Oh, I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Uh, Ex-global executive uh, in financial services, you've worked your way up from pretty much the front door. Uh, as a consequence, you know a thing about leadership, you know a thing about high performance cultures and really strong history in financial services. And then, of course, you get to your 50th birthday and have a moment of reflection in terms of am I doing the right thing with my life? Am I spending my time on the things that I truly enjoy? And, and as a consequence of that reflection, fast forward to today, and you're the founder of Gift 631, a leadership and personal growth business where you focus on help, help people reach their full potential. Uh, and of course, your book, The Rocking Chair Test, is out now as well. And we'll, we'll come back uh, a little bit to that as we go through. So exciting times. As someone who personally hates to see potential left on the table, I'm really excited uh, in, in this conversation and digging into some of your personal formulas for success. Welcome. Mm, thank you. Delighted. So maybe a good place to start, because I think it provides a bit of an insight into you and, and your view around leadership and personal performance, is your journey through financial services. I think that would be a really good good story to start with. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I kind of tumbled into financial services. I'd, I'd done a degree. It was a modern history degree. I didn't really know where I wanted to go, but I knew I had some student debt to pay off. And um, so I found a job in uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland. And um, my journey actually started almost straight away that the first thing I had to do was go on a, a five-day cashier's course. And at the end of that first week, I'll never forget the trainer was going around the room asking everybody what they'd learned on the course. And I was the last person around the around the circle. And... Um, you know, people have said, I've learned how to balance the cash or I've learned the difference between head office debits and head office credits and all these different things. And, and when they got to me, I said, um, well, I've learned but that by the time I'm 30, I want to be a manager because I don't want to be doing this. And in those days, you know, pretty much every manager was in their late 40s or in their 50s. Pretty much everyone was male. They all looked the same. They all dressed the same. They all acted the same. And I just thought, I, I want to break through. I want to, I want to, I want to, there's a better way to do this. And um, so I wrote down on the little folder that we were given on that course, I will be a manager by the time I'm 30 because I don't want to be doing this. And I kept that with me every single day. And I looked at that. And by the time I was 30, I was actually a senior manager. And so much had started to change within financial services through my 20s. And um, then very quickly, I found myself um, in UK financial services in the time, they were just starting to think about personal selling. And um, I was part of the very first UK sales team. There was only four of us. Uh, I was the senior assistant manager, UK sales. And then I found myself uh, leading a sales team. And the next six or seven years were just a, a glorious period in my career when I believe one of my, my superpowers is the ability to inspire and motivate. You know, I'm, I'm very proud to say I've, I really enjoy needs-based selling. Um, I love selling myself and then I love leading others um, to create a, a really high-performing sales team. And, and then I just followed a, a traditional kind of path. I ran an area, then I ran a region, then I ran a super region. And by the time I was 33, I was regional managing director for the north and east of Scotland. And, and I had a conversation with the managing director one day and he's like, well, you're too young. You're never going to get my job. Um, we, need to, you know, we need to find something else for you to do. So it was in one sense a little bit frustrating, but in another sense, um, I believe it gave me, it broadened my career. Um, I spent some time running learning and development. I spent some time running internal communications a little bit of time in, in product and, and marketing. And then, you know, I went back into distribution and, and I led the first party mortgage division for the Royal Bank Scotland and National Westminster Banks. You know, then we hit the, the global financial crisis and um, I was made redundant. Had this glorious day in, in Leicester in the East Midlands of England where I was there with 95 of my leaders and I had, the, the, well, I had to make everybody redundant, including myself. And um, I worked exceptionally hard on the back of that 
um, on the back of that day to make sure that those who wanted to leave, I helped them leave in the in the most respectful way that they could. And those that wanted to stay, I worked exceptionally hard to to find as many of them, you know, a, a role as I possibly could. I took the decision to leave. Uh, I believe there's opportunity in absolutely everything. On the back of that, three months later, I was hired by um, the Westpac Bank to move to Australia. Had seven and a half years here. Um, basically replicated a lot of the things I'd done in the UK. I ran the state of Queensland. I ran the St. George Consumer Bank across Australia. And I ran the uh, the Westpac Premium Bank, uh, high net worth um, personal banking division. Uh, and then, as you say, I turned 50. And finally, after almost 30 years, I, I worked out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Fantastic, fantastic. And a, a lot of those different roles that you did beyond distribution obviously create a really well-rounded executive. One of the things I'm interested in, because I've spent a little bit of time in sales, and when you talk about needs-based selling, I can really understand and get behind that because it's not pushing product for pushing product's sake. It's understanding what somebody wants and helping them achieve their dreams. But selling in and of itself is an art form and not everyone's completely comfortable with it. And quite often in financial services, you inherit a branch network and there's a lot of ingrained behaviors and this is the way we used to do it. And Jim comes in on a Tuesday and he cashes his check and, and conversations and relationships. In building a high-performing needs-based sales team, what are some of the challenges you've seen and how have you overcome them in that area? Yeah, and I have a, a, a very, very simple formula. When I look at it, anybody from an individual salesperson to a sales team, a sales function, a sales business, I have a very, very simple formula that I follow. If there's, This is outside of product and outside of brand, outside of marketing. So this is really the people element of building a high-performing sales team. And the first thing I look at, this could be an individual, like I say, it could be a team, it could be a, a business, um, is it all starts with activity. You know, the more people I see, the more successful I become. And I used to say to, to my team, you cannot sell to an empty chair. So it's activity, activity, activity. If we're seeing enough customers and we're not as successful as we want to be, it's because we're not saying the right things. And as a leader, as a sales leader, the only way you really understand if you're saying the right things is through observation and then obviously coaching and feedback. But making sure that conversation is based around, first of all, simple things, building rapport effectively with the customer. And the first part of any sales interaction should absolutely be understanding that quest that customer. So asking as many open questions as you possibly can to really understand why you're sitting in front of of that customer to really understand their dreams, their needs, and, and their goals. And then obviously working from that point. So if we're seeing enough customers and we're now saying the right things and we're still not where we want to be, it's because the attitude isn't right. Now, we can create a great tone, we can create a great environment, but attitude, that comes from within. So, you know, you have to earn a right to be on my bus and I can train you you know, I can give you the skills, but you have to want to learn. You have to want to grow. You have to want to develop. You have to want to come to work every single day to give the best version of yourselves. So I do set a, a very, very high bar around attitude. You've got to earn your right to, to be on the bus, and then we can give you everything else. So if, if you're seeing enough customers, you're saying the right things, and it looks like the individual salespeople have a, a really good attitude, you know, positive can-do um optimistic action orientated and we're still not where it needs to be well then i look at, at the belief and the motivation now again i believe those things are intrinsic but i think as a leader you've got a responsibility to create an environment a tone a culture that's conducive to people coming to work every single day with a smile on their face a high level of self-belief a high level of self-confidence a high level of self-esteem so if the belief and motivation looks a little bit lacking then I'm really looking at the sales leaders. What are we doing in terms of the culture? What are we doing in terms of the environment? And I have a very, very simple virtuous circle of success. And it starts with people and passion. And if you get your, your people proposition right, if you get the passion right, then you know, you're going to deliver a higher level of service. No one can tell me that miserable people 
deliver outstanding service. It just doesn't work that way, as we both know. So you get the people uh, proposition right, the morale, the, 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 the motivation to do amazing work. You get that right first, put a smile on people's face, then they'll deliver a higher level of service. Equally, no one can tell me you can sell consistently on the back of poor service. I just don't believe you. In fact, the higher the level of service that we deliver, um, we actually sell less because customers buy more because they become our raving fans. So that, that's the start of the virtuous circle. Um, people and passion leads to ever-enhanced service. If you get that service proposition right, you sell more. If you sell and serve exceptionally well, you win things. If you win things, your morale improves. You know, people get are more engaged. That their, their, their passion, success breeds success. You know, their, their passion increases. If you get that right, your service increases. So that's a virtuous circle. And I fundamentally believe where too many sales leaders go wrong is instead of starting with the people, the passion, they go straight to the, the bottom line. They go straight to sales or revenues or profit numbers, and they just micromanage at that level. But I believe if you get your people and your passion and your service proposition right, the rest of that virtuous circle will look after itself. So, you know, that's where I think as a sales leader, our job is to absorb pressure not release pressure into the system. And I think that is one of the reasons why my, my, either my, my own, my team's or my division sales performance was always so exceptional because we understood that. You know, we've got to absorb the pressure. Any customer can tell when they're faced by a, a salesperson who, f who is feeling under pressure. It just leaks through the body language. It leaks through the, the conversation. And they're just that little bit tighter and they're almost desperate to make a sale. We've got to take that away so they can just be very natural in terms of how they have that conversation to build that trust and rapport with a customer. So that's, that's really, for me, that was the, the, the essence of how I thought about, you know, sales. Um, but very, very clear, um, you know, operating rhythm, very, very clear cadence, um, starting with some very, very clear activity metrics because that drives everything mm. that that buffering of the pressure really important and but but the performance of the team and every single person within it is is critical for the success of the whole organization how do you manage to buffer that pressure but still instill a performance culture around the individual being really clear on what good looks like and the standards they're expected to achieve yeah, I think for, for me, there's three massively important words in, in leadership, clarity, consistency, and simplicity. Every business that I've ever had the privilege to lead, start with absolute clarity about why we're here, you know, and I'm, I'm very, very overt about, I want to build the most successful team or business unit or division of the organization that I'm working in. And to do that, we need to set very, very clear, but also very high standards. So going right back to the early parts of, of my sales career, you know, um, everyone else thought 100% was the target. And I said to my team from day one, 100% is the baseline. That gets us into the game. It doesn't win the game. So when everyone else was, it was almost like this big sigh of relief when they hit 100%. For us, okay, now it's game time. You know, now we, that's just a given. That's just expected you know, we, we will get to 100% and then we'll go and we'll go really hard. Um, so clarity is so important. Um, clarity of, of vision, clarity of goal, uh, clarity of action, clarity of behavior. Um, and that's, that's um, having clarity, but also providing clarity. And then you've got to be consistent as a leader. A leader who changes their mind every, every week is never going to achieve, you know, an optimum level of performance. So if this week, this is important, if next week, that's important, if the third week, something else is important, if everything's important, nothing's important, I'm just waiting for you to change your mind again. So being consistent about the things that matter most, I think is really, really important, but also consistent in the same Andy Fell turns up each and every single day. I used to say to my bank managers, the way you come in is the way they go out. So we set the tone. So let's make sure whatever's going on outside of of the organization, when we cross that line, we're setting, we're role modeling the tone 
that we want to set for the rest of the business. So being consistent in that tone is really important. And then being great simplifiers. One of the mistakes I made the early part of my leadership career, I was, I was a leader very, very young. And uh, like I say, you know, I was in an organization where traditionally I was probably 15, 20 years younger than, than most of my peers um, as I was breaking through. And so I was almost trying to justify myself. And I wanted to prove I was really smart. And I made the mistake of overcomplicating everything to show that, you know, I was a really smart young dude and, and I could cope with the opportunities that I was being given. I soon learned that the more complexity you bring to a team, the less chance you have of people being able to follow you because they can't understand you. Um, so, you know, I then reversed that and I realized that great leaders are great simplifiers. And when I moved to Australia, I, I was hired by an amazing guy called Jason Yetton. And Jason coined this expression, which I absolutely love. He said, our job as leaders is to make the complex simple and the simple compelling. And, and to me, that's the art of not just sales leadership, but any great leadership. If you want to create a degree of followership, you know, it's got to be simple and I've got to be, un I've got to be able to understand you. And then I can get inspired and, and follow the direction that, that you're setting. Yeah, and it all goes back to that that why. And I guess this is a bit of a put your own oxygen mask on first position is being really clear in your why as a leader and understanding why you're there and what you're trying to achieve and then being able to communicate that to the whole team is, is critical. I think that's absolutely clear. And um, also spending, I mean, one of my great mentors was a guy called Jim Brandon. And Jim, really fascinating guy. He was born in the Bronx. Uh, in New York, African-American, and sport was his way out. Um, this is Jim's words, not my words. He says, sport was my way out. And I, he said, I was never the most talented basketball player, but I just worked and worked and worked and worked. And he worked his way up, and he was on the fringes of the Boston Celtics um, in the days when Larry Bird was was probably the, the, the best um, player in the NBA at the time, leading the, the Boston Celtics in the day. And Jim was hoping to make the final 12 for the next season. Didn't think he was quite good enough. And then um, quit the Celtics and went to Europe. A different story from the, the point we're talking about. But interestingly enough, the guy who he thought would get his spot um, broke his leg and never actually um, made it back into the Boston Celtics, um, you know, starting five. And Jim walked away from that probably six weeks, two months too early. But this guy's just got an incredible player mindset. You know, the fact that he walked away from multi-millions of dollars and championship rings and everything else, it hasn't impacted his mindset um, openly. I'm sure he has certain moments. Anyway, so he goes to Europe. He has a successful career as a player and a coach, and he's commentating on TV. And I, and I saw this guy when um, he was coach of the Sheffield Sharks. I was really interested in basketball at the time. And I'm sitting in the stands having a beer with a mate and I'm seeing this guy coaching. And I thought, this guy is phenomenal. The way he's kind of interacting with the players, you know, the way he's just so cool and calm under pressure. I'm like, I've got to get to know this guy. And the guy I'm sitting with is like, well, how on earth are you ever going to get to know him? You know, we're up here sitting in the stands having a beer. He's down there coaching at the time, the most successful team in, in UK basketball. I said, I've got no idea, but I'm going to meet that guy. If you fast forward 25 years, you know, he's been my business partner, collaborator, my mentor. Um, I give a lot, but I learn a lot from Jim. And on the first time we really sat down um, and had a coffee, he, he said two things to me that really stuck with me through my whole life. The first thing he said is, um, as a leader, you've got to know yourself before you start selling it to others. So really understand yourself, Andy. Really understand, um, to your point, your, your vision, your why. Um, your goals, your values, really understand that. And, and then, you know, you'll be an authentic servant leader, selfless leader, and you'll be able to, you know, share that really effectively with those that are around you. And, and that's incredibly engaging. And I ask lots of leaders, you know, why do you do what you do? Or what do you stand for as a leader? And it's amazing how woolly a lot of the answers come back. And I think, well, you know, if I'm going to follow you, into this world of, of real high performance, I want to understand that. I want to understand why you do what you do. And I want to understand what you stand for. I want to know what's in and what's out with, with you as a leader. Anyway, and then the second thing he, he shared with me was, he said, he said, you know, Andy, he said, the difference between me and a lot of the other 
coaches in the BBL, the British Basketball League, he said, um, most coaches will save their timeouts to the end of a game. He said, I'll use a timeout early if I need to. He said, because I have this philosophy in life and sport of no drift. And he said, I see it in business too often that you know, people just allow drift. And before we know it, a week's gone, a fortnight's gone, a month's gone, a quarter's gone. And we haven't addressed the issues that we all know are there, the elephants in the room. We just haven't addressed them for whatever reason. We've walked by them. And he said, he said you've got to have a no drift philosophy. So I'll call a, a timeout early. I'll get the players in and I'll reset the plays. I'll, I'll reset the mindset, whatever it might be. And I took that straight into my sales leadership. The moment I saw we weren't where we needed to be, I would call my equivalent of a quick timeout. You know, we'd have no drift, we'd reset. And it also meant that, you know, I wanted to front load my diaries. Too many, too many sales leaders, everything's a rush at the end of the week or the end of the day or the end of the, the month, the quarter. I wanted to be the opposite to that. So I wanted to go home on a Tuesday night knowing I was going to have a fantastic week. So we front loaded absolutely everything. We got we we blasted out of the blocks. You know, I wanted the most important appointment of the day, first thing in the morning, get off to a great start, set the right tone through the branch, through the team, through the business. I wanted Mondays and Tuesdays to be packed. So, you know, everything else was was just um, you know, the icing on the top of the cake. Whereas too many people play too much catch up and that's when your people feel the pressure. Mm. You know. Yeah. It, Eating your frogs first, big rocks first. I'm really interested in the psychology of procrastination, and and I suffer from it as as much as anyone can. And you know, and there's there's occasions where I can break through, but there's times where it slows me down significantly. And what you talk about there, front loading, biggest appointments first. You know, it's, that, that's the absolute opposite of that. Why do people behave? You know, based on the observations of the people you worked with. Why do people tend to back end those things? And more importantly, how can you help them get through that? Yeah, I think procrastination is, is a fascinating subject. And I have lots of very, very simple frameworks. You know, everything I do, it's simple, it's practical, it's actionable, it's clear and experience-based. So one of my personal mantras to avoid procrastination is decide, commit, go. So I decide what I'm going to do. I then give myself a commitment test. If I'm not at least a nine out of 10, I don't even start. So my goal is to start less and finish more. And I see so many individuals, teams, and businesses where they're starting initiative after initiative after initiative that then just fizzles out. Massive waste of time, massive waste of money, massive waste of energy, and it just drains motivation. So I decide and then I commit. But then I make sure the gap between committing and going is very, very small. Now, I will throw myself into the arena of action. And one of my other kind of expressions is I'd rather be 66% awesome than 100% perfect. And I believe too many procrastinators, it's because they're seeking perfection mm. before they'll move. And why they're seeking perfection, it's not actually the fear of failure, it's the fear of judgment how other people are going to perceive either either what they do or, or what they produce. So I go decide, I commit, and I go. And I see the gap for too many people between committing and going is just too long because then we start to second-guess ourselves. We start to overthink. We start to question ourselves. And, and all procrastination does is it builds doubt and it builds fear. So for me, as soon as you're committed, take the first action. You know, And, and one of my other mantras is or frameworks is i have a one three six approach so my one is is my smut goal my my big goal i then break it down into three sub goals and then i break it down into my six next best actions so i go really big with the goal but really small with the action every time i take an action i replace the action so if you set you know small actions and you're consistent in the delivery of those actions a it's good for the brain because the brain is sensing progress. It's sensing momentum. Success does breed success. It's exactly the same with the, the diaries. It's front-loading the diaries to get off to a good start. Having simple actions but doing them consistently is getting off to a good start when you've, when you've set yourself a, a really big goal. Um, so I think those are some of the things that, that I, I do think about. But if you think about sources of validation, 
You know, you either it comes from within or you're dependent upon external validation. And I think a lot of procrastination comes from those that are reliant upon external validation. Normally starts when we're a child, you know, we're seeking uh, parents saying or teachers saying, well done, that's good, you know, good boy, good girl, whatever it might be. Um, If you fast forward that to today's world, which is so social media dominated, whenever people post, they're almost desperate. I need likes, I need comments, I need shares. Um, And as soon as they get a little bit of uh, the opposite of that, they're incredibly wounded by that. Mm. Um, Those people are over-dependent upon external validation. Those of us who understand the only person who can really judge us in life is ourselves, you know, it's that internal validation. I know when I've done my best work. Equally, I know when I haven't done my best work. But I'm, I'm willing to put myself out into the arena, acknowledging that not everyone is going to love everything that I do all of the time. But that's not a good enough reason not to take the action in the first place. Yeah, when you're building something long-term, the dopamine hits don't come. And, and, and I guess that's what puts a lot of people off. In terms of good leaders, and, I, and I'm interested in exploring this before we get into your model and framework, because this is all contributed to what you've, what you've built. In terms of good leaders, how much is born and how much is made? Yeah, I, I, I'm a believer that it's, a lot of it is made. Uh, I look at, you know, I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I was successful at school. You know, I, I was you know, the head boy of the, the junior school and the, the senior school. I was captain of the, the quiz team and, and cricket and football teams and the like. But I was, I was very introverted. I, I was quite a, a shy guy, um, you know, through my school career. Um, and then it was only when I, I started work, really, I, I looked and worked for amazing leaders. And the difference they made to me through my earlier mid-twenties was absolutely significant. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I, I think people have become very lazy about their self-development and there's more opportunity to invest in ourselves than ever before, you know, through everything from YouTube, TED Talks, podcasts, um, formal learning, informal learning, having easier to hook up and have a coffee with someone you admire anywhere around the world, you just do it virtually. So there's so many opportunities to learn and yet, you know, I, I, I believe too many people, it's like when people um, get the, they're called a manager for the first time. And you can see they think, oh, I've made it. And I'm like, no, no, no. No, this is the start of the journey, not the end of the journey. And I think, you know, for me, I'm passionate about my self-development. You cannot outgrow your level of self-development. So much of who I've become as a person and a leader is through the self-development my winning circle, Jim Brandon being one of those that I mentioned, the people that I surround myself with, and then the leaders that I've, I've had the privilege to work for. And when I'm coaching um, today, I say, look, whatever you do, don't chase um, the fancy job title and don't chase the pounds, the euros, the dollars. Chase the leader in the culture. If you chase the leader in the culture, the pounds and the dollars and the fancy job titles will look after themselves. But I think too, people, too many people get too excited by the shiny toys over here mm. and they miss out, you know, the, what, it's, what it's really about. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting you mentioned about when you first make manager and, and your attitude when you take that role. And one of the things that, that I try and talk to my leadership team about and, and, and anyone in this role is when you're at the beginning of your journey, it's okay to have lots of gaps. In fact, I'd encourage there to be lots of gaps and I'd encourage you to try and close those gaps. But when I think to my own leadership career and, and the, the trajectory I was on, and, and when I look at other people as well, I see people scared about those gaps early doors and, and then they try and protect them and that causes them to micromanage and that causes them to have protectionist behaviours and that causes them to be, you know, to flip-flop and get into the detail instead of allowing people to, to make their own decisions. I think it's really important to accept that you've got gaps and then embrace and explore and look how you can fill those. Yeah, and I, I'm unquestionably a strengths-based leader. You know, I, I understand my superpowers and I've worked incredibly hard over the years to take a strength and make it into a superpower. My development areas today are my development areas from 20 years ago. You know, whenever I walk into a, you know, a team development session and I look around the table, 
and everyone around the table seems to be a reflection of the leader, that's an issue. That's a concern. And too many leaders still today, they're hiring people who are like mini-me's. And I don't think you have to be that smart to work out that a really good leader will hire people who are just very, very good <laughs> at the things they're not very good at. And I think that, again, was another reason why I was able to have you know, a, a great career in both the UK and Australia because I really understand, back to Jim Brandon, know yourself before you start selling it to others. I knew myself. I knew what I was really, really good at. I knew where I was so less effective and I just looked for outstanding people who were very, very good at the things that I was not. Mm. It seems a, a logical thing to do, but it's not consistently followed. I always get... I always get a nice smile when one of my teams has a load of interviews scheduled for important roles and they don't invite me. I, I really like that because I know that they've got the confidence to do the hire and undoubtedly you'll make some good hires and you'll make some bad hires over your career. But the fact that they don't want me there is great because I don't need to be there. Yeah, that's right. You know, they're, they're an expert in, in, in that role. They know what they're hiring. They're an expert in what they're hiring. I don't need to be there at all. So I really like it when I'm not part of that. All right, let's jump into the rocking chair test, mm. um, which I really love as a concept. Uh, perhaps if you can you know, tell me a little bit about that in terms of you know, the, the point at which you reflect and go, well, did I hit the potential that I had during my life? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, many people would look at me from the outside and go, actually, this guy's had a, a really successful life and career. You know, I was, I was general manager in... Um, you know, one of Australia's leading financial services company. Um, I was in the top 1% in both RBS NatWest and, and in the Westpac group where I worked in Australia. Um, but I, I never felt completely fulfilled. Um, I knew there was more in me. Um, and so I was away in Bali on my 50th birthday. Myself, my wife, Leona, um, our three girls and our best friends and their three boys. And um, my 50th birthday, my um, eldest daughter had hung around the villa that we were staying 50 photos from 50 different moments of my life. Between each photo was a speech card. Each speech card started, I love Andy because, and had been written by somebody who was there. So everyone had written a, you know, a few of these different cards. Some are very, very deep and meaningful. Others, like our best friend's little boy, Johnny, was six at the time. I love Andy because we play footy together. But you know, as I go around, I'm looking at these photos and I'm reading these speech cards. I've actually, you know, I've got a tear in my eye. And it made me really reflect in the moment very, very deeply about a couple of things. First of all, I said, I'm going to achieve more in the next 25 years of my life than the previous 50. I see so many people slowing down at 30, 35, and I'm, mm. I'm just really getting started at 56. And the second thing I did was I took Sir Richard Branson's rocking chair test. So Branson goes, you're 90 years old. You're sitting in your rocking chair outside your house. You're looking back on your life. What do you want to be saying to yourself? Do you want to be saying, well, I wish I'd done this. I could have done that. I should have done that. I had the ability to do this. I was really passionate about that, but I didn't. Or do you want to look back on your life and go, well, maybe I didn't get everything right, but at least I gave life my best shot. And I took that rocking chair test. And that was the moment I decided I was going to leave the corporate world. I was going to leave financial services and I was going to set up my own business. Um, so that's the rocking chair test, essentially. And I would encourage every single person to take that test at some point soon. Yeah, and it's a remarkably simple concept. And, and what I'd like to get into now is, so you take that test uh, and you go, am I, am I happy with where I am now? Have I got more to offer? And how am I going to get there? And then we start to look through some of the key components of, of the models in which you employ, which are, again, remarkably simple, mm. but they require you to do the work. And, and that's the key. And I've got the book in front of me and I've started to go through it and I've started to scribble in the margins as you encourage the, the readers to do. But when you get in the book and you, and, and you open the pages, you understand that's an absolute prerequisite. There's so many sections where it expects mm. you to do the work, do the reflection, really be clear on what you're trying to achieve and why, where, you, where your good points are, your superpowers. That's something that really resonated in terms of you know, what are you, what, what are you really good at and what would other people say you're really good at? And then how does that intersect with what you're interested in? So if you can talk through the, the key components of how you then structure your days, your weeks, your months to achieve more in 
the next part of your life? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, I would actually doesn't really feature in the book. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing saying I'm going to, I'm going to walk out on a, you know, a, a fairly senior position within a, you know, a major corporation within um, Australia. I'm 50 years old. I've actually got four kids. You know, we've, we've got a home loan. We've got all of these different things. Um, so, you know, initially I journal every single day um, and I was just journaling on my thoughts about, okay, I've made the decision, but, you know, I need to make sure when I actually uh, leave the building for the last time, I'm in a place to, you know, make sure that the family's secure and we can live life in the way that we want to live life. So I, I spent some time, and I call it my 8P process, really thinking the first P was my, what is, what is my purpose? You know, it's, it's one thing to say I'm going to fail the rocking, chest, but, che, rocking chair test, but how do I make sure I, I, I pass it? So let's get really clear on, on my purpose, which is around helping as many people as I possibly can strive to reach their true potential by being the wind beneath their wings so they soar to new heights. That's why I believe I'm put on this earth. It's to help as many people you know, move in the direction of their potential um, as I possibly can. Um, so come from a position of, of, of help and help people with their belief, their confidence, their self-esteem. And, and we all know that when your belief and confidence is high, that's when you'll step out of your cave or your comfort zone. And that's when you'll, you'll stop procrastinating and, and take more decisive action. Um, then I thought, well, it's great to have a purpose, but you've got to have a plan that backs up the purpose. So I spent some time, a plan on a page, very, very simple stuff. And the plan really focused around the third P, which was the problems that I was going to solve. And I think whatever it is, going right back to the start of the conversation around, if you want to be a really effective salesperson or sales leader, you, if you can be the problem solver for the clients, then you're in a really, really good place. So what problems was I going to help people with? Everything it may be from, you know, developing a high-performing team. It may be how do you turn strategy into execution. It may be a lot of the individual work around confidence, belief, but getting really clear on on the problems that that you're looking to solve. And the second set was really, well, what characteristics do I need to bring to life and business on a daily basis? And it started with passion. You know, if I'm going to leave financial services and run my own business. It has to be something that I absolutely love doing on a daily basis, you know, and, and that's what I do to, to this day. It doesn't feel like work. I love what I do. I do what I love. People can, you can feel passion. You can smell passion. Um, energy goes to energy. It draws people to you. I just love it. I love what I do and I love the difference that I make. So passion was my next P. Then it's about perseverance, you know, and, and I'm a, a great believer that behind it, Close to every closed door, there's an open window. Too many people, they get to the door, they realize it's locked, and they just stop. It's a bit like when I met Jim Brandon. You know, the door was closed, but I, I kept going. I knew mm. there was going to be a way. Yeah. There's an open window somewhere. So that ability to persevere was my fifth P. And the sixth P was an interesting one for me, uh, was patience. You know, I'm very impatient with Andy Fell. I drive myself exceptionally hard, but I'm very patient with GIF 631. And I think that um, was a, a really interesting um, dichotomy for me that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to make sure I, when I go to bed every single night, I've done everything I possibly can. But that doesn't mean the business will just take off in day one. Um, and it's a bit like in, in life and business, I only have two speeds. I'm either completely still or I'm completely fast. If you look at me from the outside, all you see is this speed but if you're going to go fast, you want to make sure you've given yourself every opportunity to go fast in the right direction. And so for me, I have, a, I have an appointment with Mozart every single day, which is my time for myself, by myself, with myself. No technology, no chance of interruption or disruption. Just me, my thoughts and my journal. If you can create that absolute stillness for 10, 15 minutes a day even, that's, you know, greatness requires stillness. Because from that stillness, you get clarity. And from clarity, you'll get the innovation, you'll get the breakthrough, you'll get the success. You've got to slow yourself down so you can hear yourself think. And I feel too many people, they're on the, the, they're on the treadmill or the hamster wheel of life all day long. They're just doing, 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 doing. So this ability to stop and go slowly enables me, once I've decided, I've committed, and I'm going, to go all in 
with a good chance I'm going all in in the right direction. Yeah. So again, I, I run not only, you know, patience and impatience, but stillness and speed. And then, you know, my um, next P was positive people. Um, there's so many people who want to dream stealers, whatever you want to call them, people who want to crush your goals, crush your dreams, crush your ideas, live in a, a very negative, cynical mindset. And I realized very, very quickly when I was going to leave financial services, the number of people who told me, you're mad, you know, you're crazy, you know, why don't you just hang on? You've, you're a general manager. Are you going to risk everything you've ever achieved just to follow this dream? And then when we told people we we're going to leave Sydney and move to the Gold Coast, it was, it was another level again of you'll never build a business on the Gold Coast. You know, you've got to be in Sydney or Melbourne. And actually, I, I love that. That just fuels my inner burn. That fuels my inner passion. That fuels my inner drive. But I realized that, you know, I've always been pretty good at pushing negativity as far away from me as I possibly can. But I made a conscious effort um, once I'd founded Give631 to make sure I've got this amazing, you know, group of positive people around me. And then my final P was pivot. And when COVID came along, for example, I lost about 90% of my business in about three or four weeks. When you're a face-to-face -face coach, speaker, you do leadership and talent development, talent development events, you run offsides. You know, as we all know through COVID, there's not a lot of that going on. So I had to make this massive pivot. And straight away, I just came up with this mantra, pivot to win. And I got immediately on the front foot in terms of rebuilding my business, obviously in a very, very virtual sense. And it's when I really uh, focused on, on writing the rocking chair test. I thought well, this is one of the things I can do through COVID. Um, my first book is, is now published. My second and my third book are both half written. Um, so it just kick-started my business in a completely different way. And that pivot meant suddenly you could coach people anywhere around the world. It didn't matter if they're in yeah. Vietnam or Canada or Botswana. They could come to you. You could go to them. When I was running virtual events in Australia, I could bring in speakers from the UK, North America, wherever they might be. And equally, I could speak in events overseas um, from you know my office in, in my house. So COVID... Um, changed everything I think because I had the right mindset because I had that 8p process and because I had the ability to pivot to win so that was really my, my setup process um, and then the book um, the rocking chair test really takes people through my success formula um, now I can't define success for you or, or anybody else who who listens to this but what I can give people is a formula for this for their success and that formula um, is goals plus mindset plus action times the ability to debrief, to drive continuous improvement. I mean, we all need to adjust our performance from time to time. But the only, re the only way you can adjust your performance is if you understand your performance. And therefore, you know, um, the power of the debrief for me is a great accelerator uh, in life and business. Yeah. And reflecting on the good and the bad and reflecting on the things that happened recently and, and that happened a long time ago really helped you understand who you are and why you made the decisions that you did. The piece about the circle really resonates and, and that's really the premise behind this podcast in that it adds someone new to your circle for you know a, a short period of time but it allows Andy Fell to be part of your circle mm. for an hour and, and understand what makes him tick and, and, and you, you take away those attitudes. And last week it was Steve Brophy and next week it's going to be Benny Wallington. So, so the, the, the circle's critical. I know that when I was going through a transition moving out of uh, my, my first role in Australia and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I remember the people that I associated with and those that left me feeling the most energized and the certain people that after a conversation with them, my mind was full of ideas. My, my rate of action was significantly higher. And, and it's because of the people that I was associating with. So it's, it's absolutely critical. I'd like you to talk me through what Mozart time looks like uh, without getting into your deepest, darkest secrets. But I'm, I'm really interested in kind of the, the kind of things you ponder, how, sure. how that time goes, and particularly the journaling piece. Because when we talk about journaling... A lot of people get put off because they think it's the secret diary. And, 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 but journaling can take so many different forms. And I think it'd be really useful to get your perspective on what you do. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. When I was a bank manager, going way back, probably 1993, I was a young guy. 
70 people in the branch house running at the time. You don't get bank branches like that anymore. <laughs> I'd be surprised if there's one left. That, that's, yeah, that so would I. So would I. And 25,000 customers, this young kid running this, this huge operation. And I was out of my depth. And I'd go home at night and I'd be like, I've worked hard today. But what have I actually achieved? And then I went on this course. And the only thing I can remember about this course was the tutor telling a story um, about Mozart. And apparently, and again, I've no idea if this is true or not, Mozart used to suffer from composer's cramp. And the way he used to get over this composer's cramp was just going out into these beautiful estates in middle Europe on his own, isolating himself from the world. And when he was listening to the birds and, and watching the deers and, and smelling the trees, that's when he'd start to compose music again in his mind. And the tutor was really the essence of the story was, you know, greatness requires stillness. You know, you've got to give yourself time to think on a daily basis if you want to be truly successful and, and have any chance of reaching your potential. So I went back to the branch and I put in my diary every single day, Mozart, because what gets in my diary gets done. So, you know, 15, 20 minutes time, you know, in the morning um, for myself, by myself, with myself, told all of the branch, you know, this is time I need. And 30 years later, that practice is still a core part of my day. So I build to my Mozart time. My morning routine is called my 4M routine. And I recommend to every single person who listens to this that they have some form of morning routine to get into the ideal performance state. And mine is the 4M routine. So it starts every single day with some movement. And again, a lot of my clients will say to me, Andy, I'll never be a runner. I'll never be a swimmer. I'll never be a cyclist. I'll never be a gym junkie. I say, that's cool. Just move. You know, 20 minutes walking. If you've got a dog, you've got to move. If you haven't got a dog, pretend you've got a dog. Then you've got to get out of bed and you've got to get moving. Tony Robbins would say to you, if you want to change your state, the first thing you do is change your physiology. So, you know, great connection between the, the brain and the body. Very creative state, very innovative state. So I'll just move. And then I'll do what I call a mind cleanse. And all of these are, I'm habit stacking to make my Mozart time more effective. A mind cleanse, you know, I literally, I, I literally cleanse my mind. Everything that's in my mind I'll just put it down in my journal. Things to do with my business life, my personal life, it all goes down. But it's not a things to do list. Um, what I then do is I put a star against what I regard as the high value activity. I think, I believe a things to do list can be a race to the bottom, lots of low value activities. Um, so I don't, I don't feel under any pressure at all to do everything that I've mm. listed down. But anything that's got a star against it, if I can do it quickly, I do it. If it's some deep work, I go to my diary and I have slots in my diary for deep work. I'm a fundamental believer in time blocking to be more efficient. And I put what I've starred into the next available time block. So it might be a proposal for a client. It might be writing a couple of chapters of the book, whatever, whatever it might be. It might be building a, a new presentation for a new client. That goes into that time block. So that's the mind cleanse. So my measure of success at the end of the day, have I done everything with a star against it? Or have I allocated time to do it in my diary? Then I meditate. And again, there's a lot of talk, as we both know, around burnout, anxiety, pressure, stress, movement and meditation to proven techniques to reduce all of those things. Mm. Do you have a particular practice on meditation? I do. I just use the uh, Calm app, yeah. guided practice. Um, frequently, it's Jay Shetty, um, which is seven to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, I'd say it's more wisdom than meditation. Uh, so it's almost like you feel you're doing your self-development whilst you're having a, a short meditation uh, practice. Um, or Jeff Warner, Jeff Warren is the other guy I listen to um, if I'm not listening to Jay Shetty. Mm -hmm. But I, I love the Calm app, um, 10 minutes guided practice. If there's a lot going on, I'll just do a simple sleep meditation in the evening as well uh, outside of this because it just leads me. I want my subconscious brain when I'm sleeping to be thinking either relaxed through the meditation or thinking positive things. So I think end of day reflections, instead of thinking about the things that haven't gone well, if you can end the day either doing a little bit of reading or listening to a sleep meditation or, or reflecting on the, the glitter and the gold from the day, I think that's the right way to do it. So all of this, so without a mind cleanse, I can't meditate. Because if you think about a mind cleanse, I'm clearing my brain. The old days when I used to try and meditate, I'd sit there going, I've got to do this today. I've got to do this today. I've got to do this today. It, it was a waste of time. So now I've got this beautiful process where the mind cleanse is the perfect setup for the meditation. 
the meditation is the perfect setup for the Mozart time. So I do my Mozart time straight after my meditation because I'm focused, I'm centered. I'm in a very relaxed, creative, innovative state. And then my Mozart time, sometimes I give myself a question. You know, how do I build a better team? How do I serve my customers better? Um, how do I become, you know, a better family member? Um, where do I want Gift 63 to be in five years? What are my SMUT goals for the next two years? Um, how do I deliver a better service? Um, how do I use technology to, you know, um, develop a global business? So I might give myself some, some questions uh, to ponder. Um, sometimes it might be, you know, I might just be thinking about the next book I want to write. What, what do I want to be the, the core subject of the book I want to write? Some days I just have some simple practices. I write down three or four things I'm happy and grateful for. Um, I write down, you know, my chosen affirmation or a few affirmations or a manifestation. Uh, today will be a great day because... Uh, and then at the back of my journal, I have this list of... Um, I call it my Be Amazing list, which is uh, a list of things that I'm really proud of that I've achieved in my life, big or small. And I like to add to that list one thing mm. on a daily basis. So again, if you're having a moment where your self-belief, your confidence, your self-esteem is down, if you go either to the, your list of affirmations, your list of what you're happy and grateful for, or your be amazing list, you just start writing or start reading. It, it will trigger a, a change in your state. Uh, and then some, some days I just freeform journal. Whatever's on my mind, I just journal. Sometimes it might even just be a little picture. But I don't put myself under any pressure to come up with an outcome from that Mozart time you know it's where my outcomes come from but I, I'm not trying to force an outcome for a day or I don't feel I need a tangible result from my journaling it's just a, a tremendous process so gift 631 is the name for my business mm. that came from um, my Mozart time from my journaling the rocking chair test as a title came from my journaling the success formula came from my journaling decide commit go came from my Mozart and journaling um, learn, copy, add 10%. And one of my absolute core mantras came from Mozart time and yeah. journaling. So, so much of who I am and, and how I think and the formulas that I use have, have come over time from journaling and Mozart time. And I think it, it's the process, isn't it? You know, you might write for 10, 20 minutes and never go back and look at it, or you might. But the fact that it's coming out of your brain onto paper, it, it, it then starts to solidify in the real world and you can do something with it. I'm really interested to go back and, and try and understand the mentality of a 25-year-old who had the confidence to say, hey, everyone, this is my thinking time. Leave me alone. Because back then, we're, we're, we're of a similar age. We've been through the same, same eras. That would have raised a few eyebrows, I, I can imagine. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, and particularly because I gave it what most people at the time thought was a silly name. Many people still do to this mm. day. But, you know... I. I I do believe um, there's no point hiding away from these things. You know, I've been very uh, avert through every leadership role that I've had about, you know, and as I develop these practices in my first communication with new teams, I would always make sure I made the effort to go through these practices. Right, I need this daily Mozart time. This is what it is. This is why I do it. This is the value for me, but also for the team in the business. You know, as a leader, um, I believe I was a very approachable leader, but you know, my door was never always open. Mm. You know, any leader that says to me, my door's always open, I'm like, there's a bit of a risk in that because if you're doing deep work, you're just so interruptible. Um, so I think it's about communication and it's about explaining why it's so important. And I would imagine at the time, it was never actually said to me openly, but I imagine there's a quite a few people around me at the time who knew I was struggling. They weren't doing a lot to help me, by the way, but they knew I was struggling. And so this is when I put this on the table saying, you know, I'm going to, shut myself away for 20 minutes a day. I need to think, you know, as a leader, I know you're meant to think as well as do, and this is my way of doing it. Um, but it wasn't long before the business started to perform so people could see the benefits of what I was doing and why I was doing it. At the time, I also had 15 minutes a day in my diary to say thank you. Um, 30 years later, I still had that 15 minutes a day in my diary. Praise, recognition, celebration time, I called it. And again, it was just the discipline to do these things on a daily basis, consistency, consistency, consistency. And everything I share, I say to people, if you do these things once, there'll be a little bit of benefit. 
but not a great deal. This is about a, applying the same simple frameworks consistently over a significant period of time. And then they'll become second nature. You actually become more efficient. People say, how have you got the time to do all these things? You actually become so much more efficient because you're spending more time in the areas of life and business where there's tremendous value. I think we all need to work hard to understand what's high value and what's low value. Hmm. And I believe too many people obsess about low value. You know, I'll always accept there's some low value stuff that, that won't get done. But absolutely everything that I regard as high value, high purpose, high impact, high meaning absolutely gets done. And I think that is a critical distinction. Yeah. Let's talk about goals. Anyone that ever wants to achieve something of greatness has to be very clear on where they're heading. They have to be very clear around what the goal is. And most people would say, let's get something that's smart and we can measure it and it's realistic and we can assess your performance against that at the end of the year and perhaps even your pay rise might be linked to it. But not Andy Fell. Andy Fell doesn't want that. He wants no, unrealistic and unachievable goals. So tell me about those. Well, I go along to my first ever sales course in the Royal Bank of Scotland and the tutor says two things on that day that I, I kick back against. Um, the first thing he said was people buy people. And I'm sitting there going, no, they don't. People don't buy any type of people. You don't buy miserable people. You don't buy people who are disrespectful, who are rude, who are condescending or patronizing. So I think it's just one of these bland expressions that people threw out. People buy positive, can-do, optimistic, action-orientated people. So he was kind of throwing out these, these terms as, you know, very, very excited sales trainers do. I'm like, anyway, and then he, he launched into SMART goals. And I'm sitting there going, actually, I've got a problem with SMART goals for two reasons. The first one is they're kind of based on the past. So if we both do 100, we both set a SMART goal, we both set around 105. Based on the past, add a little bit more. And I'm thinking, well, surely we should base it on the opportunity. And the second thing I was like, well, actually, if we all set SMART goals, we're all going to be about the same. We're all going to be mediocre together. So from that day forward, I just said, I'm going to set unsmart goals. Hence, 100% is the baseline, not the target. I'm going to set unsmart goals. So I go across to England and I'm doing some work with um, the Exeter insurance business. And I'm sharing this whole concept of, of, of unsmart goals, as I called them then, setting really, really big goals and then having a process to, to break them down, which is that 136 process. And like, we love this thinking, Andy, but we really hate that term. It's the most boring term in the history of boring terms. So why don't you get rid of unsmart goals and use smut goals? They said, everyone will remember that. I'm like, I love that. So I go for specific, measurable, unachievable, unrealistic, and time-bound goals, because I do believe a goal without a deadline is a wish. So I go really, really big, and then I use that one, three, six process to break it down. But you know, I'd rather say we can both do a thousand, whatever it is. I'm using numbers here; they don't have to be numerical. And a smart goal says I'll get from a thousand to fifteen hundred. I'll go well. I'd rather I'm going to set a goal of three and a half thousand. So it's now the end of the period. The person who said they'd do fifteen hundred has done sixteen hundred. The person who said they'd done three and a half thousand has done three thousand two hundred. So mm. they've fallen short. And I say to the groups when I'm, you know, in sales training and the other things that I do, who's won? Eighty percent of them say person A, who set fifteen hundred and did sixteen hundred. I say, why do you say that? They say, well, they set a, a goal and they've done more of it. And I go, but the other person's gone twice as far. Ah, but they said they'd do 3,500. They've only done 3,200. So they see that as failure and the other one as success. See, I see it very, very differently. I'd rather set 3,500 and get to 2,000. It's still a lot further than 1,600. So that's just how my, my brain is wired. And I think it's about, it's about back to that internal validation. If you know that you're the only person who can judge you in life, you feel very comfortable putting a massive goal out into the universe in the full knowledge that there's no guarantees you're going to achieve them. The other really important thing is when you set a SMUT goal, you don't know how you're going to do it by definition because it's such a big goal. So if you allow the logical analytical side of your brain to take over, what that is going to do is reduce the size of that goal back to a SMART goal because then the brain can work out 
well, basically, I've just got to get out of bed, roll up, turn up, do a few things, and I've achieved it. You know, so if it's not about the how, it's about the why. It's back to that vision, that purpose. You know, and and I'm believe one of my superpowers is very strong visualizer, but also I leave nothing to chance. If you were ever in my office, you're just bombarded with kind of visual representations of my goals and past successes and future successes. It just it just creates an environment which is conducive to me giving of my best and being the best version of myself. You know, and if I fall short and when I fall short, I've still taken life so much further than just living in the world of of safe and sensible smart goals. Yeah. Mindset would have to be critical with a smart goal. If your mindset wasn't right, I imagine you could get lost in the challenge. Uh, absolutely. What is it? 80 to 90% of our success is what's going on between our ears. And I'm a confidence player like pretty much everyone else I've ever met. So I have to bombard my subconscious mind on a daily basis. This ongoing dialogue, internal dialogue between inner critic and inner champion, you know, and I feed my inner champion to suppress my inner critic. And I think too many people, the old Henry Ford saying, you know, if you say you can or you can't, you're probably right. You know, and the inner critic tends to, you know, there's seven or eight times of as many negative thoughts as one positive thought, even for the most successful people in the world. So this inner critic is just, you can't do that. You can't, are you good enough? Are you smart enough? Have you got enough money to do that? Have you got a good enough team to do that? Whatever it is, the inner critic is eating away. So on a daily basis, I need to overpower that inner critic. So I bombard my subconscious mind um, and I work on my mindset. You know, that's part of my morning routine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the affirmations, the be amazing list, the manifestations, the winning circle of people, they're there to really be the wind beneath my wings, the self-development, um, the journaling, all of these things are just fueling my inner champion and, and strengthening my mindset. When your mindset's strong, you'll take more decisive action. You're willing to put, you know, I've, I put my bucket list um, out to the universe. Um, I put my SMUT goals, actually earlier this week, I put my SMUT goals for the next two years out onto LinkedIn and mm-hmm. any other platform that, that I can. I just put them out to the universe, you know, and yes, you get the odd person, you know, that's a bit of a go at you for it, but most people first of all they're surprised they admire that and then it's like well how can i help can i introduce you to this person have you thought of this you know so and so could help you with that so i encourage people a to go supersize their goals and secondly to have the confidence to put them out to the universe it's not just to create a level of accountability and focus although it certainly does it's to almost help put them out to the universe so the universe conspires to help you is my kind of view on the world yeah definitely um and and just talking about this podcast that we put together i was talking to a, a friend of mine and he said and, and people say get 10 in the bag and then start publishing them on a regular basis and it benefits the algorithm it's oh, too dangerous i'm going to do one and publish it Beautiful. and then i'm going to publish the second one just so we can keep keep that going you work with a lot of people uh you've, you've coached a lot of different people at different stages of the career and you know based on your models there's, there's lots of things that people could do differently but if you were to boil it all down to the various people you worked with over the years and you had one pill to give them that was going to change something that was going to give them a significant advantage beyond where they were, what would that be? It, it, <clears throat> the absolute starting place for me is Mozart time. Keep coming back. You know, greatness requires stillness. We've all got to slow down to speed up. Most people... So much of their behavior is um, we all work, we all live and work in certain patterns and they're just relentlessly living the pattern. And Mozart time is a pattern disruptor on a daily basis. It gives you the chance to stop, pause, think, reflect, challenge where you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it and, and go again. So I think my number one, people often say to me, they, they do my What Winners Do program, for example, and they say, wow, there's so much or they read the book. Where, where should I start? I would start with Mozart time. And then I would go to that success formula and say, well, where is it? Have I got clarity of goal? I may have some really clear goals, but you know, at the moment they're, they're dreams and they're staying as dreams. So is it my mindset? Okay, what can I do to you know, improve my self-confidence, my self-belief, my self-esteem? Um, okay, I've got clear goals. My mindset's pretty strong. I'm motivated, but Okay, let's go to the action section. Have I made a clear enough distinction between the actions that are actually going to take me in the direction of my goals 
versus the ongoing daily actions. So really getting clear on the high value, but then undertaking those high value actions when my energy is strong. You know, and that's where effective diary management is so clear. Okay, I've got a clear goal. My mindset's strong. I'm taking a lot of action. I'm still not where I need to be. Well, actually, am I debriefing? Am I debriefing those actions? If it's gone well, why has it gone well? How do I amplify that? If it hasn't gone well, why didn't it go well? How do I adjust that? So I think that's where I'd start. I'd start with Mozart time and then I'd have a good look at that success formula because I fundamentally believe the answer is in there somewhere. Fantastic. What does the rest of the year look like for you then? What's next for Gift 631? Have you got a book launch coming up in Brisbane soon? Yeah, we've got four book launches this year. We're doing Brisbane, uh, Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, I'm going back to the UK for, this is a, just a fabulous week where I'm working in England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, all in a five-day uh, period. So that's that's really exciting. Got some some amazing clients over there. Um, I'm I'm actually working towards 2025. 2025, um, in January 2025, I launched the 4M Club, which is an extension of the 4M routine that we've been talking about. And then in April 2025, I launch uh, Event 631, uh, which is really taking um, my What Winners Do One Day event into a, a, a festival of learning, a two-day festival of learning. So I'm really, really excited about those projects. So the rest of the year is, um, you know, I'm very, very blessed that I've got an incredible um, set of clients. Um, so client work, but getting back um, to my one day what winners do uh, events. So we're going to bring that back out um, starting again in Brisbane in October. We've got a full schedule of those events for 2024. Historically, we've done them in the UK and Australia. We're going to add an additional country uh, next year. It's either going to be relatively simple like Auckland or quite tempted by Vancouver mm -hmm. on the west coast of Canada um, so that's that's really um, where you know and I want to finish those second two books second book needs to be finished by um, the end of this calendar year and the third book needs to be finished by the end of next calendar year so plenty of exciting things going on yeah loads and if people want to get in contact with you find out a little bit more about what you do how's the best way to do that yeah, brilliant. Um, either, you know, LinkedIn is a fabulous way to do that. Most most social media platforms, you can do that. YouTube, you can find so much uh, of my content is all available on, on YouTube, obviously at no cost to anyone. But LinkedIn is a great way uh, to contact me. I'm very happy if you share my WhatsApp, my email address. Um, this is a funny thing, Alistair. You know, my business has taken off that I've never had or needed a website. <laughs> um, I'll get there eventually, I'm sure. But um, I'm not sure how much additional value at this stage a, a website would give me. So there's no website as such to, to point people to, but LinkedIn um, for those that are on LinkedIn is always the best place to, to find me. I think LinkedIn is an incredible platform at the moment, you know, and I hope it doesn't change. I hope it doesn't get spammed and full of stuff, but it, it's, it's the best. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, thank you very much. You've been really generous with your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. I feel that we've only scratched the surface of it. Um, good luck with the book launch. Thank you. Uh, I'll be getting through to the end of it, and and what I absolutely will be doing is applying a lot of that, uh, a lot of your advice to my own particular approach. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Yeah.